0: Welcome. We're glad you're here to join us at Waterstone. These weeks leading up to Christ's birth, we're taking a look at all of the miraculous events that surround the Christmas story. Christmas is the day that we are reminded that God is with us. It's the day we remember that God is in the birth of a baby, not born in the halls of power or into a life of luxury, but in an old barn to an unwed teen. The good news of Christmas is that God dwelt among us in the most unexpected way, and the world has never been the same. We're so glad that you're here and encourage you to attend in person if you're able. Our weekend services are on Saturday at 5.30 and Sunday at 9 and 10.30. You know, that text we played from Luke chapter two, I've probably visited that text, I don't know, a lot of times over the the years and uh, I never stay too long at the manger. I like to get to the shepherds, right? The glory of God bursting open the skies, and they were sore afraid. But I don't know, in light of this year, last year, the last few years, it seems like we should spend a little more time at the manger this year. The manger says, that there is darkness, that this is a dark place. Now, I don't mean that frontally we go around, you know, oh, this is so dark, oh, this is a dark place. In fact, I don't think we have to do that because every week we kind of encounter darkness in our world, whether it's another shooting or global pandemic, economic collapse, racial unrest, on and on the list goes. I mean, that's just like the last month. Um, We are always uh, intolerably pressed down by another event that reminds us that we live in a dark world. You know what happens is people rise up and they say we gotta do something about the darkness and we have people working in government to pass policies and we respect them and value them and we have people on the front lines like our doctors and nurses and law enforcement professionals. We should just give them a giant clap right now. And uh, our teachers as well, our teachers. people in the front lines and people who work in the computer world for technology, the business world to help us lift the economy. So all of that, we make gains, there is light, but then it happens again. Something tragic that reminds us again that it's a dark world. Now, storytellers for centuries have been articulating this darkness for us and this broader principle of evil. But one of my favorites is uh, J.R. Tolkien in uh, The Fellowship of the Ring. He has this amazing quote that describes the darkness. He says, always after, this is by the way, um, Gandalf talking to Frodo, if that matters to you. Uh, Always after a defeat and a respite, the shadow takes another shape. And grows again. And what Christmas means is that one day the light is going to come and dispel all darkness—not just the most recent shape that we'll experience this week, but all darkness, all sin and sickness, all evil and death. Christmas means that one day the light will uh, destroy the darkness. And Luke today in this text that we we heard tells us how God's going to do it through a census and a manger now you kids in the room your folks have been listening to me many of them for a long time and frankly i think they get a little bored of hearing me so what i need you to do kids is to help keep your parents pay attention pay attention today so when i say the word census I want you to do this sign for census. And by the way, I got these signs from my wife who's been an interpreter for the deaf for over 40 years. I mean, a long time. The word, the sign for census is this, sign your name. Kids, can you do that? Show me, sign your name. That's the sign for census. So every time you hear me say census to your parents, you can sign it to them. The word for manger is this, just that little baby in a manger. So every time you hear the word manger, you can sign that to your parents. So a census, God's going to destroy the darkness and we know that from a census. So here's the verses that Luke talks about it. I want you to see it again. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Cyrenius was governor of Syria. Probably a better translation, and this says so in your Bible in a little footnote, that before Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. Now, uh, what's a census? Well, in the ancient world, and even to the common day, it's a count of how many people live in your empire or your country. They count the people for two main reasons. One is to take your money, I mean to tax you, to pay taxes. And the second reason is to exercise, and this will depend on what form of government you live under, but they will exercise control over your life. So in this particular day when Jesus was born, the Roman Empire ruled with an iron fist and they took your money, pretty much as much as they wanted, You had very little personal freedoms that we know in in our current empire. So it, it was a rough, in fact, every time a census would come down like this, it was a reminder to God's people Israel that boy, we live in a really hard time. Another thing you should know about this census, the one before Quirinius was governor is Luke's marking a particular point in time because every one of his readers would know, oh, that census, that's when Jesus was born. What happened was this census was so strong and uh, so hard on Israel that a political movement was started. It was called the Zealots, and it was led by a man named Judas of Galilee. Luke actually mentions him in volume two of his gospel, the book of Acts, in Acts chapter five. He mentions Judas of Galilee, and uh, that what happened was this census started. It was so oppressive. I mean, even Mary and Joseph traveled from north Israel, 70 miles to Jerusalem. Why? Because this was not a parking ticket, folks. You did it or you paid the cost. And there were severe penalties. And so the, the oppression, and, and it, it launched a movement called the Zealots, and uh, it led ultimately to them being so pesky That Roman moved in in 70 AD, the Roman Empire, and they destroyed Jerusalem and burned the temple to the ground. This movement, the zealot movement, here's what I think is interesting. And kids, again, you're going to want to ask your parents about this uh, on the car ride home. Because when Jesus chose 12 disciples to change the world and launch the movement, and hey, it worked because here we are, he chose a man to be one of the 12 named Simon the Zealot. This was a man who hated the Roman Empire, who resisted everything about the government. And do you know what? He also chose a man named Matthew who was a tax collector working for the Roman Empire to collect the taxes. Now I want you to think about that for just a moment. Choosing 12, one of them, Simon the Zealot, the other one, Matthew the tax collector. So kids, I want you on the way home to ask your parents, mom, dad, what are the implications of that that I should be thinking about? Luke has another idea in mind for this census and really what he wants to tell us about it. It's in verses 4 and 5. Not only did it just uh, get all the people to register to pay their taxes, it was a hard moment. But Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, Bethlehem, the town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who by the way Luke tells us also was a descendant of David, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Do you see what Luke's doing here? He's contrasting two different power structures. The first power is Caesar Augustus, who ruled the known world, the most powerful man in the universe. He launches a census. But what Luke wants us to know was that that census is what got Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem where the Savior would be born, which was prophesied 700 years earlier by a prophet named Micah. Micah said that when Messiah comes, he would be born in the city of David, Bethlehem. Do you see it, what Luke's doing? He is saying that God is using even an unwitting Caesar to accomplish his plan. It begs the question, right? And I think this is the question that we have to wrestle with every Christmas. Who's running the world? Is it Caesar and us little Caesars? Or is it the one Who ruled the world from the womb? The one lying in a manger in Bethlehem because God said it would happen 700 years earlier. Who runs the world? You've got to decide. You've got to choose who's running the world. And there's really only two choices. Either it is Caesar and us little Caesars. And if that's the case, if we're running the world, then what does security look like? Well, it looks like, talk to your folks about this, kids. It looks like a 401K. It looks like an alarm system. It looks like an airbag. It looks like health insurance. Yeah, that's the security that we can have in this world. And what does hope look like? What does light look like? Well, uh, if we are wanting something to save us, it's gotta be like politics. Just get the right person in office. Or it's gotta be education. Just get everyone educated. Or it's gotta be technology. I mean, if we can just continue all the great advances, we can save ourselves, right? Well, Let's just think about that for one moment, talking about technology. No question, technology. I mean, uh, just some of, I mean, just, uh, I went through cancer the last couple, two years, and my dad had gone through it 15 years earlier. Just the advances that have been made in cancer in the last 10 years have been astounding. And we, were, we celebrate those. We're thankful for those. And way to go. But why is it at the same time we're also afraid that some hacker is going to get into the internet and bilk billions of dollars of wealth and plunge the world economy into a severe depression? Why is it that we're afraid if nuclear technology gets into the wrong governmental hands that we could have a nuclear winter? I think we know deep down that it's not actually the technology that's the darkness. It's what's behind the technology and who's using it is where the darkness is. Why is the world a dark place? Because we have darkness. Jesus said, out of the heart comes the words, he said, out of the heart moves the hands. GK Chesterton, the great British journalist, was once answering an editorial in a London Times. What's wrong with the world, Chesterton writes. Dear sirs, I am sincerely GK Chesterton. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the great Russian poet and philosopher, said that the line between good and evil does not run between countries and nations. It runs right down the middle of the human heart. You see... We can try our best with technology, education, and government to make the world a place of shining light. But how do you do that unless you change the human heart? And that's the story of Christmas, that it's the glory of the Lord and a power outside that comes into this world. And that power, that good news of Jesus is what can change the heart. Uh, my favorite Christmas movie is Charlie Brown Christmas. I watch it every year, uh, you know, mostly by myself uh, because Jan and the boys, they, enough, enough Charlie Brown. But years ago, I read a little bit about what went on for that movie. I read a biography of Charles Schultz, how that he threatened to walk off set because the censors did not want one minute of the Gospel of Luke on network television But Schultz won the battle. Linus gets up and says, Charlie Brown, here's the meaning of Christmas. What's interesting is that as soon as Linus says, fear not, you know, the angels to the shepherds, fear not, Linus drops his blanket. It's the only one of three times that you would see Linus without a blanket. I think Schultz's point is that when we trust the words about this savior, maybe we don't need the things in this life we thought we needed to feel secure. That's what the census tells us. That it's not Caesar running the world and it's not us little Caesars running the world. Could it be that the baby in a manger is running the world? You get to decide who's running the world. And then we come to the manger, right? Jesus runs the world from a manger. A manger, why a manger? Well, in the immediate moment, they didn't have many options, right? What I think happened You can read for yourself. There's a lot of writing about, you know, what actually happened and why a manger and why, uh, where they actually stayed. I think Joseph had relatives in Bethlehem, probably his parents or grandparents. He went to visit them. It was near Passover. So the town, Bethlehem's four miles from Jerusalem. Bethlehem was also known as a place where sheep and goats were raised, thus the shepherds. And uh, people would buy their lamb and go to the temple with their sacrifice. And it was crowded and packed and probably a lot of Joseph. His extended family was there. And in houses of those days, there was a family room, there was a guest room, and there was the lean-to outside the house where they had the animals tied up. My guess is Joseph and Mary, uh, the house had the family in it. There's probably older relatives that were visiting, and in that culture, you would never kick anyone out that was older than you. Or it could be that there was still this hint of scandal especially if they weren't clued in on, on all that was going on and these were these two young teenagers who made a mistake right and mary's pregnant it may be that they were shunned and they just said okay you can stay out on the stable learn a lesson whatever mary gives birth to jesus he's placed in a feeding trough why i submit to you it's the christmas pattern that what Luke's trying to do is say from the very first moments that Jesus was with us this was the pattern of his life now you know christmas movies i get annoyed with those that have you know this manger scene and the smiling kyles from chick-fil-a are there and there's this like backlight and everyone's head looks like a cherub and uh, it, that's that's a miss this is cruel the nativity is brutality even put aside that this is the so-called son of God, that any baby should be lying in a feed trough. What's going on here? The pattern of rejection. Jesus did not come to be accepted, he came to be rejected. Jesus did not come this time to be crowned, he came to be killed. Jesus did not come this time to bring judgment, he came to bear judgment. Why? Because if Jesus would have come the first time in all of his power and all of his glory, there would be none of us left. None of us. You say, that's harsh, Larry. If you're thinking that, I would gently push back and say, maybe you yet do not understand the depth of the darkness that's in your heart. And maybe even more, you do not yet fully understand the infinite, holy, burning purity of the presence of God, that if we were just for a moment to be uh, exposed to, we would be dead. Jesus came the first time to be rejected, to be killed, and to bear judgment so that he could take away our sins and our self-centeredness and our little Caesar lives. He took all of our selfishness on himself to the cross so that he could forgive our sins and declare us righteous in God's sight so that we could have the fitness that could live in his extreme holiness. He did that the first coming so that when he comes again next time, He can end evil without ending us. And so he comes in a manger. What does that mean? What's the power of a manger? If the census is a symbol of God's power, the manger is a symbol of God's sacrificial love that he came down to be with us now and then. Let me tell a story to unpack now and then. First, It's this. Uh, It's by Matt Proctor, who wrote a memoirs about being a father. And he was writing about a time when his oldest son, Carl, was five years old, and his youngest son, Conrad, was three years old. And he says that, boy, they loved to be with their dad during those years. And they would often dress up. Their mom would put them in blue jeans and a blue T-shirt. So the boys would turn up and get, Dad, Dad, you got to get your blue jeans and blue T-shirt on. And they'd get together, and they'd look in the mirror, and then the boys would say, Look, Dad, same, same. And then later that year, they would in the winter play Nerf football. And when they would start, three-year-old Conrad would say, dad, dad, get on your knees. Because if he stayed up and played football with them, it would be what the theologians call the holy other. But no, he gets down, he gets down. And then Conrad puts his hand on his dad's shoulders and says, dad, see, same, same. And then later that year, Dad is out back working on the deck and just scrapes his shin bad on a, on a board and there's a, there's a scar there. And then a few days later, Carl, the five-year-old, has a bike wreck, hits a curb too hard and just falls off, skins his knee. Dad runs over, Carl, are you okay? And Carl says, hey, Dad, look, same, same. The point is this, that because Jesus came in a manger, He can say to us when our job is not going the way we want, when our talent's being overlooked, when we're wondering is this even worth it to do this work, Jesus can come to us and say same, same. Talk about being undervalued. And when we and our family are having already all the stress that Christmas brings to, you know, every family has a level of dysfunction and Christmas is gas on the fire, right? And we're already experiencing those things. Jesus can come to you from the manger and say, my family thought I was a nut job. Same, same. Same. And when we come into this room, some of us walked in today, and as soon as we walk into a place like a church and we have this kind of idea that we're gonna be talking to God and singing to God and having like in the presence of God, all that we can think about is some of the mistakes we've made in our life. All that we can think about is our past decisions that totally turned our life in a direction we never thought we'd be where we are today because of mistakes. We walk into this room and Jesus says, yes, I see you but I want you to know that I died on the cross for those sins and they do not count against you. I know you're having trouble of letting go of them, but they are not between us. You are forgiven and none of this counts against you. You have instead forgiveness because I died for you. You have instead my obedient life that I give you, so you are righteous in my sight, same, same. So as we come now to the table of the Lord, Uh, I wanna say two things. First, maybe some of you here in the room, you've never before in your life sat in a place like this or in a time like this and really understood why Jesus came, why a census brought him to Bethlehem, why he lied in a manger where animals eat. He did it for love. He did it for you. He did it to come down to your level and today to kind of just look you in the eye and say, if you will give your heart to me, I'll take away all your sins and I will give you a future. Talk about now and then. When the then happens and I come back again, you get to sit around a table with the heavenly Father and a new heavens and a new earth. Same, same. What happens to Jesus happens to you. And so, in this moment, You have an opportunity. I don't know where you're coming from, but you have an opportunity in this quietness to say, Jesus, I see you. I believe you are the son that God sent to save me. And I just want to say right now in this moment, I'm yours. Go ahead. Say it quietly to him. I'm yours. I believe in you. For other of us, you know, we've heard this now a hundred times. And what I want to challenge you to do is what I mentioned earlier. Leave the manger now and go be a shepherd. Because if this news is true, it's too good to be kept to yourself. Share it. Invite someone to Christmas Eve. Take a gift to your neighbor. Spread goodwill and point to Jesus.